Today I want to talk to you about the long-suffering of God. In fact, the title of today's sermon, if you look on your outlines, if you got one when you came in, is Long-Suffering Love. Long-suffering is a word that has fallen out of common use in English today. I I think it's unfortunate because long-suffering is a powerful word, indeed a powerful virtue, a word that speaks about the virtue of compassionate response. When a person bears the wrongs of another, hence suffering, and does so over a period of time, hence long, and does so without retaliation, we say that is long-suffering. According to etymology, the word long-suffering comes from an old English word, long, which is used to describe something that has a great linear extent, something that extends considerably from end to end, long. In the old English, long is a reference to a a drawn-out duration with overtones of something being serious. Long is not uh, a trivial, it's serious, and it's, it's drawn out, it's serious, Indeed, wrongdoing against another is serious, especially over time, and that is something that we all do in the course of our lives. Before the holy God of heaven, we have sinned against him, and we've done so for a duration, considerably from end to end in our lives. From the womb to the tomb, we have sinned against him, but praise be to him that he is long-suffering in his love, and he does not forsake us in our sin and our misery. In the Bible, God is described in this way of long-suffering. One passage that comes to mind is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, with Moses on the heels of the people of Israel, sinning against God, turning their back on God over a duration of time. And we read in Exodus 34, verse 6, that the Lord, the Lord God, He is merciful, the text tells us. The Lord, the Lord God, is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. The histories of the Bible record God repeatedly this way as long-suffering, specifically in relation to his people and their sin. This, of course, is not license for his people to sin. May it never be. On the contrary, it is reason for us to repent, and it's power for us to pursue holy living before God and, and, and compassionate works before our fellow man. Now, speaking of the histories of the Bible and God's people as a church, we are studying an era known as the post-exilic history of God's people Israel, and today we continue our sermon series in this era known as the post-exile, which is regularly reminding us of God's long-suffering. I have entitled this series, Faithful to Fulfill a Study of God as Revealed in the Post-Exilic Scripture. The post-exilic scripture are found in six books in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, those are three historical narratives, and then we read in Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi, the prophets of the post-exilic era. So in those six books. Now, we left off in our study last week in one of those books, the book of Zechariah, so I need you to open your Bibles, find your way to the book of Zechariah. We finished the seventh and eighth chapters last week. It was a fire hose, and this week, The fire hose is going to rev up more because I'd like to get through chapter 9, 10, and 11, and we're already running late, and I'm just beginning. So uh, get open, Zechariah 9, draw your attention to the sermon outline. I'm going to be moving through it, and you see, by way of introduction on the sermon outline, I wanted to surface the long-suffering character of God before we get into the ninth chapter of Zechariah. I wanted to surface his long-suffering Uh, in this message in the face of our our sin, which I've already made mention of, and I also felt a certain weight and preparation to begin with this introductory uh, surfacing of this theme of God's long-suffering and sin because, well, one, the the chapters that we are going to survey today reiterate the faithfulness of God depicting His long-suffering these post-exilic texts are reiterating it. Zechariah is one of those texts. It's no exception. It's, it's depicting God's long-suffering. So it's fitting to begin the sermon with an introduction on his long-suffering. His long-suffering. And, and the, 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 these texts are, are, are highlighting profound homardiological realities in the face of his long-suffering. Uh, added, our week has been fulfilled with profound homardiological rumblings. Now, in case I have missed you with this word homardiological, the word homardiology is a word that is used for the study of sin. Homotia, it, it means sin, ology, the study of. 
And when we read these historical texts of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, when we read the prophets of this, of this era, uh, okay, we, we, are, we are seeing a lot of homardiology. We need to study it. And when we turn on the news, we see a whole lot of homardiology too. When we look into our hearts, we see a whole lot of sin to study, a lot of homardiology too. In our relationships, we find sin and if these homardiological realities concern you, and I hope that they do, can I say that you have come to the right place because we will explain them today and more. And this brings me to the first point on the outline, the answer to the mess. A moment ago I mentioned the news. Indeed, what a week it has been in the news. Devastating and dark news filled with violence. This week, February the 24th, the world watched as Russia invaded the neighboring country Ukraine. Vladimir Putin ordered a full-scale military invasion of Ukraine by armed Russian forces. On the news, we saw tanks rolling down the streets and, and airstrikes in the skies and missiles hitting civilian homes and schools and people running for their lives and people hiding in subways and doing everything that they can to find shelter. Meanwhile, as, as bombs were flying over children's heads, Putin comes and he tells the press, whoever would try to stop us and further create threats to our country, to our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. We are ready for any outcome. I mean, words like that, from a character like that, we could be on the precipice of another world war. And in moments like this, skeptics... Will, 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 will ask, or rather attack, those who believe in God. How can you believe in God when there are, are bombs over the heads of children? How can you believe that a good God exists in, in light of all of this evil? I, I, how, how can you do that? In response to that, we, we, we show them the revelation of God. We speak to them of the God who creates, of the God who made the world, and He made the world to be a world of peace, he made the world to experience him, in fact, in a, a garden of peace where his presence dwelled and where his love was known. And there was no long-suffering love. It was just love because there was peace and, and the created's relationship with the Creator was, was, was good. Of course, that garden was corrupted and humanity used the gift of their free will to respond to the Creator and His will for them with rebellion. And as a result of going against the God who created order and harmony, now we have disorder in the creation. In responding against the God who gave life, in, in, in rebelling against the giver of life, now we have death and we have disease, and we have dysfunction, and we have the rest. Oh, well, where is God in the light of this? We, we tell them of the God who created. We tell them of the garden that was corrupted. We tell them of, of God that gave humanity this, this gift of free will, and humanity now is shackled to their will and bent against God, and they use the gifts of God to destroy the very creation of God. Further, we follow the storyline of the Bible and we see how God responded in grace to this, to this rebellion of humanity. And, and in that corrupted garden, he removed his presence, but he spoke a promise and said, I will deliver you. And that promise went from our father and mother down to the great uh, patriarch and prophet Noah. And we, we follow the storyline of the Bible and we, we see subsequently to to Noah, we see governments rising up and they're at each other's throats and we see what we're seeing right now with Russia and Ukraine. We see it. The garden's corrupted. And now, now governments are, are in conflict and they're at each other's throats. What goes on individually within the hearts of fallen men spills out into their cities, into their states, into their nations. It, it percolates out into the social dimension, and now you see the, the, the war that rages. And so as the nations are warring, God comes and He gets this man Abram, and He names him Abraham, and He gives him a promise, and He says, I'm going to make you into a nation that will usher in peace to the nations. And so He promises him a progeny, and He promises him a place, and His progeny will go to the place, the promised land, and from the promised land He'll establish a people, a kingdom, and a nation, and He will use them to bless the nations and usher in peace. 
in order to do that, they would have to be more than a nation. They would have to be a priesthood because they would be mediating between the fallen, corrupted, created things, and, 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 and they would be mediating to bring them back to God to cleanse the corrupted. Uh, Israel and her calling to be mediators, to be priests, to be this nation, however, failed. You see, because the problem was woven into their hearts as well. They, they are fallen. Abraham was fallen, and Isaac was fallen, and Jacob was fallen. Their kingdom was fallen. Their great king, David, fallen. Their kingdom falls apart. They're wiped out. The ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south, they're wiped off. They're carried into captivity. They go into exile. And God, in His faithfulness to His promises, brings them back from the exile. That's post-exile. That's the context of the message today. He brings this people back into the land. Uh, seeing what's going on with Ukraine, seeing what's going on with the war, seeing a, a nation rising up and saying, we're going to be independent, and seeing other nations go against them. This is very much like the history of the people of Israel, if you know your Bible well. There is war. There is exile. There are refugees. What we are seeing in Ukraine, nations attacking nations, this, this, we see it throughout the Bible, and the Bible makes sense of it. So the skeptics are saying, yeah, where is your God? We explain to them the state of the affairs, the answer to the mess, is the mess that we have made, rebelling against the giver of life, but the giver of life is, is long-suffering. Where is your God? Oh, he's long-suffering, you see. Why isn't he doing anything? Oh, he is. Trust me, he is. Well, I, I want to see, why doesn't he just, oh, because if he just, you would be included too. You need to be quiet and be thankful that he's long-suffering, for we all would be swept in his justice. This problem will continue as long as man inhabits the earth. It will continue unless the Lord does something in the heart of man. For you see, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The mess in the world is a fruit of the mess within. And the Christian hope is that God is actively at work in saving hearts and is sovereignly working out a plan to make all things new for His people. Today's passage is timely and it speaks to the crisis. It is written to a nation devastated by war and it contains a message furthering this understanding of the homardiology of the war that is within. And woven into this message, we find meaning for suffering in the sovereign will of God, His coming justice on this evil, and His long-suffering with the messes that are made by the people. We have a lot of ground to cover, and so we need to get into the text. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Let me stop real quick. The burden of the word of the Lord. Zechariah wants the audience to know where this is coming from. More importantly, who this is coming from. And I do as well. This God I'm talking about, this creator that I'm talking about, this isn't just any old creator. This is the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the true and living God. There, there's a God that men think of in their minds. There are many gods that many men think of in their minds. I'm not talking about a figment of your imagination, God. I'm not talking about a God of the world religions or anything like this. I'm talking about the God who is. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. Here is the burden of the word of the Lord, Zechariah says. Let me tell you of the God who is. The burden of the word of the Lord here, that, that phrase, if you flip in your Bible, you'll see that same phrase is repeated in chapter 12, verse 1. So there are two burdens that come, two oracles that come. Chapters 9 through 11 are the first one, and then chapters 12 through 14 are the first one. And because they come in those chunks, that's why I'm trying to preach through it to do justice to the text, because this original message came in this chunk from chapter 9 through 11. Now some translations here instead of saying the burden of the Lord, they will have the oracle of the Lord. It is a fitting translation to say the oracle. It is a fitting translation to say the, the, the burden. It's fitting because in reality, God's oracles were burdens for the prophets. They're heavy. A lot of people think that prophecy is cool. Oh yeah, prophecy. Give me some of that prophecy, that end times prophecy. But that's a reductionistic understanding of prophecy. These are heavy messages. In the early sections of the post-exile that we've studied, the, the people, they were compromised. They were living for themselves. God had rescued them from, from being refugees in foreign lands. He had brought them back to this land, not because they had done anything, not because they were deserving of it, but because of His promises, because of His long-suffering. 
And he, and, and, and he brings them back to this land and he, he calls them, you're to be the priesthood. Build the temple. The temples mediate through the priesthood. The temple harkens back to the garden that was lost where my presence was. Build the temple and my presence comes and the nations come and you tell them of my goodness and you call them in repentance of faith and we extend the message of salvation to the nations and through the proclamation of that message, through the ministry of the temple, the nations come and salvation comes. I've brought you back to the land to be my priest and build that temple and they've got the wood and they've got the gold and they've got the silver. And they started to look at those supplies and think, you know what, that wood would look nice in my place. That silver, that gold would look nice on my wrist. And they started to take the resources that they had and they started to use them on themselves. And we saw in Haggai, he comes and he says, you know, hey, hey what, are, what are you doing? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, what, what, are, what are you doing? You guys aren't, mediating you're not being the priesthood you're not calling people in repentance and faith you're not you didn't build the temple you're you're just worried about your own stuff and your own rights and your own wants and your own what are you doing the hebrew word for oracle or burden masas it comes from a verbal word that means to lift up to lift up something that is heavy the masas has come and you can see you can picture zechariah holding the masas and it's, it's heavy, it's weighing on him. Masas is, is, is used in other literature for a burden that is imposed by a, a master on a subject. I've, I've got this burden, I need, I need to lift this. And he lifts this burden and he starts talking about the arrival of the Messiah, which is the second point on the outline. The answer to the mess, the arrival of the Messiah. Now, at first glance, it might sound, how is that a burden to talk about the Messiah? That sounds really happy. If you understand prophecy, you know the coming of the Messiah, though, was a burdenous message because in the last days, this was surrounded by calamity from the nations of the people with both a judgment on the nations and an accounting of the people of God for their, their, their sins. There's a Messiah with this coming. This is heavy stuff. So the description of the Messiah coming in chapter 9 that we're going to see, you'll, you'll see that he's depicted as a divine warrior. That's Messiah. That's heavy. Divine warrior? I don't want warriors showing up at my door. I just want Amazon and UPS and Grubhub. I don't, you know, who is it? The divine warrior. Oh, snap. Uh, I have you on my ring. Get out of here. The messianic warrior prophecy is a heavy one. And it speaks to the immediate historical matters that are in front of Zechariah with the sinful compromises of the people and these enemy nations all around them that are threatening them. Further, it looks beyond the present into the future in parallel historical events to the present that will pan out in the last days. It will recapitulate itself in its fullness. I shared with you earlier in this sermon series about when you're reading prophecy, and I gave you this illustration, I'll put it in front of you, of, of, a, of, a, of a man symbolizing the prophet, and he's looking at the horizon. And there are these mountaintops, but from his distance, those mountaintops, they all, all begin to blur. What the prophets see from this angle is just these mountaintops, but they don't see these valleys in between of what's going on. So as they talk, they'll blur together things about the Messiah's throne, things about the Messiah being rejected, things, things that are going on immediately in front of them. It all kind of kaleidoscopes and comes together. So Zechariah in, in, in chapter 9 through 11 and throughout his, his oracle, his Messiah, his, his burden, he sees the Messiah and he sees things that are future. Things that are future to him but are past to us that have been fulfilled in the first coming of the Christ. He sees things that are future, still future to us in the second coming of the Christ. He sees things that are future, that are past to us before the time of Christ that were fulfilled in his oracle. So as we're reading, you're going to see these things collapsing on one another. The prophecy begins mingling together as a man in the mountains looking on the horizon. And in the horizon, we'll see he sees the divine warrior who comes and he condemns the fallen earth. The arrival of the Messiah begins with kingdoms being condemned. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we see the Messiah come in his long-suffering love to win back the people of Israel in their land that they had lost due to their covenantal unfaithfulness. 
He, the Messiah, will reclaim the northern territory of Israel that we'll read about in verses 1 through 4. The southern territory he will reclaim in verses 5 through 8. Recall that the kingdom was divided before it fell and people went into exile. It was divided between the north and the south, as I said a moment ago, as a result of civil war and divine punishment. Assyria wiping out the north, Babylon wiping out the, the south, and the Messiah comes and starts, starts remedying this. Draw your eyes at the text, chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus and, it it, and its resting places. For the eyes of men, especially on the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord and Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, they are very wise. Tyre built for herself a fortress, piled up silver and, and gold. Behold, verse 4, the Lord will disp dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea and she will become consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and will be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. And uh, Also, Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish, uh, uh, will, will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will be inhabited and a, uh, and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I said before uh, reading these verses, the Messiah moves from the north to the south. This list of the cities that you see here in 1 through 7, they might not mean anything to you unless you have the geography in mind. Uh, you know, if I'm like, yeah, we'll go, we'll go from uh, Hollywood, we'll come down to Santa Monica, we'll, we'll, shoot over to, we'll shoot over to El Segundo, then we'll go down, you know, Manhattan Beach or whatever. You kind of have those in your mind. So let me put the geography in your mind so the text makes sense to you. The, the text is moving from north to the south. You see here in front of you, Hadrach, Hamath, northern Syria. Damascus, southern Syria. Look at the bottom, the four cities that are mentioned in verse 5. Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon, Ashtod. Those territories in the south, they're a part of the Philistine region. If you know your biblical history, when you hear Philistine, you go, oh, those are the bad guys. Yeah, the anti-Semites who hate Jewish people who want to kill them. The spirit of the Philistine is alive today in the nations of the world. The Philistines might be gone, but the Spirit lives on. Suffice it to say, the list of the cities here in Zechariah 9 is not Santa's nice list. It's the naughty list. These places are condemned. The prophecy of the Messiah coming and, and, and sweeping his judgment from the north to the south is underway. We see the Philistines. They see it coming. The Philistines are like, oh, snap. He's coming from the north. He's coming down. Verse 5 says, they're afraid. Ashton and, and Ekron, they're shaking in their boots because they're going to be hit first. You, you see that as we're watching the Ukraine. You see where the attacks are coming. You go, man, you better get to, you better get to the west because, man, it's, com it's coming that way. They're coming for Kiev. Look at, look at where it's going. You better run the other way. Ash, 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 Dod, Ekron. Oh, my goodness. They're, 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 they're shaking. And the prophet speaks with frankness about the judgment on these lands. And the prophet, he, he doesn't pull any punches. He's rhetorically harsh. We might, we might say, I like to say at least, that the prophets were the original battle rappers. They just dropped disses. You're like, oh, you know, they're just dropping disses on each other. Look at verse 6, for example. He speaks about the mongrel race. The mongrel race. In Hebrew, this is the word mamzer, mamzer, which is used to describe a child of incest. You could literally translate this as the word, the B word that rhymes with mustard. There's kids in the room and it's kind of a strong word, so I'm not going to say it. But, you know, a child of incense, uh, you know, it's, this is a strong word. Mamzer. And in that culture, a mamzer is an illegitimate person who has no claim on land or inheritance. Indeed, the Messiah will claim their land and will judge them. They have no claim on it. You've lived in violence and godlessness. I'm taking it back from you. The prophet brings this sobering message and does so with rhetorical force, with dislanguage. He does it with prophetic sarcasm. For example, note the reference in verse 2. Tyre and Sidon. Oh, you guys think you're really wise, don't you? Note the irony in verse 3 that, 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 that she spends all of her time using her wealth and then it's all just thrown, verse 4, into the sea. These are the cities that are known for their wealth, cities that are known for their natural resources. It's all going to be laid to ruin. Along with natural resources, they were known for their mighty fortifications that defended them and kept their enemies out. History records that Tyre withstood a five-year siege from the Assyrians. The Assyrians couldn't take them out. Later, Tyre endured a 13-year siege by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Like, th these are strong cities. Not in the hands of the Lord. Pink, I'm going to knock them over. 
Notice in the middle of verse 6 how the writing of the prophet shifts from the third person about the Messiah to the first person. The Messiah speaks, look at verse 6, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Verse 7, I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things between their teeth. Whoa, that got really graphic. Um, Verse 7 begins with a vivid imagery of a man with blood dripping out of his mouth. This is like straight out of the YouTube uh, backyard brawl videos. This is Kimbo Slice. This dude just got Kimbo Sliced in the mouth. He just had a horrible beatdown. This is worse than the, the kid that our poet described whose palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti. He's got food all over himself, blood all over himself. Speaking of the food, the text says that he has detestable things in his mouth. Sekurts which is used of food. It's used specifically of unclean animal flesh. He's got food in his mouth. It's all over his sweater. He's shaky. He's bloody. In the Torah, there are laws about having clean and unclean and detestable things in one's mouth. The imagery of this unclean meat. Moses is clear about the meat that you put in your mouth being kosher. This is sakuts. This is, this is, this is gross. It, you're supposed to drain the meat from your food according to kosher law. And so here you have this sakuts in his mouth, this, this unclean meat, and his mouth is bashed in. Sakuts is also used, by the way, for, for little idols. It could be a wordplay. You got your little idol in your mouth and you're chewing on your little idol and it's lacerating your mouth and you got that thing in your mouth and you're all, you're all bloody. You're giving over to your idol. It's graphic. But with that, notice what the text says. There's a strange twist here. Verse 7 begins with, I will remove. The Messiah brings judgment. You in the south, you're shaking because it's coming. He brings judgment, but he also brings grace. There is cleansing. He comes to take the idol out of the mouth. He comes to take the unclean food out of the mouth. He comes to wash the blood from the mouth. Like the angel who purified Isaiah's lips in Isaiah 6 and cleansed his his mouth with the coals from the altar, so too the Messiah comes and cleanses the mouth of the Philistine. Again, remember who the Philistines are. They hate the flesh of the Messiah. They hate the people of the Messiah. They want to kill the people. And God comes and cleanses a Philistine. An image of God's grace on the Gentiles. I will, verse 7, I'll remove the blood from their mouth. I'll remove the detestable things from between their teeth. And, and, and they, look at this, they will be a remnant for our God. Philistines? Yeah, they're going to be a remnant. They'll be like a clan in Judah. They'll be like Ekron, like the Jebusite. Don't miss this. Verse 7 say, states that Ekron will be like Jebusites. Now, who are, who are the Jebusites? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Jebusites lived in a well-defended city on a hill. Not even the military leader Joshua and the subsequent judges that we read about in the book of Judges could, could eradicate them. Eventually, King David came against them. Eventually, down in the history of God's people, the Jebusites were absorbed into Judah. They were brought into the blessings of the covenant of God. These outside Gentile enemies of God were brought into Judah. So while this is a prophecy of doom and gloom, it's also a prophecy of destiny and grace. Philistines will be forgiven. Verse 4, there's a chiasm in verse 4. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Gaza, Ashkelon. Ekron's in the middle. You see that? Ekron's in the middle. Ekron will be like the Jebusite. The Philistines' mouth will be washed. Those who are enemies of God will be given grace they will be saved. They will be washed. Friends, that's the gospel. That's what I began with, the answer to the mess, the homardiology, the problem of the nations, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. There's not a person in here who hasn't sinned against the Creator, and therefore there's not a person in here who doesn't deserve to die. And therefore there's not a person in here who doesn't uh, experience dysfunction and, and darkness in your life that you need to be liberated from. And there's not a person in here who has been saved by God who did anything to deserve it. You didn't earn your salvation. You can earn a paycheck, but you can't earn this one. And you can't earn salvation because your, your sin has made you unclean. Your sin has brought you under the wrath of the law. The law presumes obedience, so obeying it, oh, I'm a good person, oh, I'm spiritual. That can't pay your debt. 
You can't kill someone and do good stuff to pay for killing someone. You can't violate the law of God and do good to make yourself right. And so we stand condemned by the law, rightly called enemies, criminals, thugs, enemies. And those of you who are saved, when you were saved, you were just that. The scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word Christ is the word Messiah. We're reading about the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah and the Messiah saving Gentiles. And we're reading Paul's letter to the Romans where he talks about Gentiles being saved and Jewish people being saved and them being brought into the covenant of God. And he reminds them that if you have been saved, you were saved when you were at your worst, a sinner. And look at what the text goes on to say. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, Romans 5, 9 and 10, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Philistines are washed. Brother or sister, you came today to hear the gospel. And that's what I'm telling you right now, the gospel. You are an enemy of God, and he washed your mouth. He pulled the idol out. He, he, he made Ekron a part, of, a part of Judah. He brings people in. He brings you into his covenant. You didn't deserve it. You deserve to be punished. All bloody, all messy, all angry, all wrathful, all, all lost. And he came, and that's what he did for you. Brother, sister, that's what he did for you. And you need, to, you need to hear that. That needs to be the point of our gathering, that we hear that. That we're filled with joy that he would do that for us. That we're filled with gratitude that he's done that for us. And among us, those who, who come, who, who haven't come into this, you hear that and you hear this invitation. Come, be cleansed by him. Cry out to him, forgive me. He's mighty to save. He, he will do just that. Cry out, Jesus, forgive me, and you will be saved. I will, verse 8, camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for I have seen with my eyes. With my own eyes, God sees the oppression of the nations. He sees the oppression of the nations. We read this in our public reading of Scripture. Again, an encouragement to come on time because that Scripture was so important, and, and God was tying together all that in the, in the, the passage that we read. A hard word that God, that God brings to those who oppress the poor. A, God, a, God, a word from God about, about how, what, what you're doing, what the nations are doing, and, and the judgment on that. And so the skeptic that says God isn't doing anything, oh no, he, he is doing something. A hard word for those who throw bombs over the heads of children in Ukraine. God camps around. And in verse 8, he specifically, look at verse 8, he specifically camps around his house. That's a reference to Jerusalem. Now recall what I said about the prophets and looking on the horizon. The, the prophet is seeing some kind of a battle. The battle really parallels what we read about uh, the, 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 the judgment of God, the tribulation age, when the nations are coming against Israel and they're warring against Israel. It, 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 it parallels with things that we read about an antichrist who comes and wages war against the people of Israel and tries to desecrate the temple and the Messiah comes and he comes to the temple and he protects the temple. But this also, he's seeing other things that are mirroring this. And we know in history that they're called right there to be building the temple. And we know that the temple that they build is going to come up against an empire, specifically the Greek empire, who will threaten that temple. Uh, we read, look, look at verse 13, a reference to the Greeks. This is about 200 years before the Greeks. He's prophesying about 500, about 200 years later, 150 to 200 years later, the Greeks will come on the scene. Alexander the Great, you, you hopefully heard about him. I know our public schools aren't the best, but hopefully you know a little something about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, the Greeks, they wrecked havoc in the providence of, of God, though God was using the havoc that they were wrecking for his divine purposes. Notice the detail here. God camping around his house, that's Jerusalem, and specifically in Jerusalem, what's his house? The temple. You know about the Greeks, you know about Alexander, you know that he was gang-banging around and he was conquering lands, and if you know your history, you know that he came to Israel. And before he came to Israel, he sent letters, he shot off some emails, he was doing some tweets, talking trash about the temple, talking trash about the Jewish people. 
The ancient historian Josephus writes about this. And he says, I'm, I'm coming down. Tweet, tweet, tweet. You know, people are like, oh, snap, he's coming. Alexander the Great, he's coming. And there were a group of, of Jewish men, specifically priests, who, according to Josephus, they received a prophecy from God of the figure who was, who was coming to the temple to wreck it. And God told them to put on their priestly garments. And when he comes, not with any weapons, but in your priestly garments, you walk out to meet him. Oh, that could be a sermon in and of itself. Thinking about the armor of God in Ephesians, and we wrestle not with flesh and blood, that the weapons of our warfare, right? You put on your priestly gown, and you go and you fight with that. And, 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 and history records that they did that, and they put on their gowns. And guess what? History records that he too, Alexander the Great, recounts that he was given a vision by God, that when he came to town, there would be priests who would come out and greet him, and that he was to listen to them. Two independent revelations given. We think of the revelation that was given to the Magi when they, when they came and they found the Messiah. Oh, just like that. And so they come out, and history records for us in Josephus, they came out in their priestly gowns, and he's like, I saw this. And he says, what? And they bring the word of God to him. They open to the prophet Daniel. They read Daniel chapter 8. There's a figure in Daniel chapter 8 that has a lot of parallels and overlap with Alexander, and they read that to him and show him prophecies of God and show him how the prophets saw these things that blurred together, and it looks quite like him. And apparently this conversation and the power of the word of God caused him to spare the city and the temple. The prophecy of Zechariah is hundreds of years in advance. There is going to come from the Greeks, he says, verse 13, one who's going to come and the nations are going to be wiping things out, but I will surround my temple. I will protect them. Those priests were fulfilling prophecy, oracles that Zechariah saw. He spared the city. History records that the pagan king and, and, and his vision and the, and the priests, and history records even further that he actually, the pagan king, gave a sacrifice in the temple for his own sins. He is saving Philistines. He brings a pagan king to his temple who offers a sacrifice. You know that Alexander's mom raised him, telling him that he was the son of God? He was the son of the, the Egyptian god Ammon? He thought he was divine. And here God brings him and humbles him before his temple. And just as he said in prophecy, I will camp around my house. In his camp are armless men in priestly gowns. Look, look at the map. See, see the campaigns. See, he's just going around, gang-banging on fools. And he comes down here. He comes down here, and look, here's Jerusalem. He passes on by. Look at the arrows. Look at the arrows. He starts punking people. He starts punking. He comes back to Jerusalem. He just passes on by. I will camp around my house. Rejoice, Israel. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. We move from kingdoms condemned to the next subpoint. The king comes. Verse 9, behold, your king is coming to you. And, and, just, and, and he is just. Verse 9, he's endowed with salvation. Humble, he's mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the house from Jerusalem, and the bow of the war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophet speaks of the Messiah bringing peace, not just to the land of Israel, but to the ends of the earth. In the prophecies of the New Testament, we see this day, we see this day would come with the return of Christ. Again, the prophet is seeing these mountaintops. He's seeing the Messiah coming. He's seeing this Messiah coming and, and this word of peace. He's, he's seeing the Messiah coming in the first century. He's also seeing blurred together with this, the Messiah coming in the future. We read in the book of Revelation the, of the wrath of the Lamb and, and, and Jesus who comes with divine tribulation on the nations that incidentally sweeps from the north down to the south. And Jesus spoke about this in all of it discourse and the judgment of the temple and that the Messiah would come to the temple and that he would bring peace. The, the king would bring his kingdom, the rejected kingdom that was offered in the ministry of Jesus. He's, he's preaching. The kingdom is at hand. He's offering them the kingdom in, in his ministry, in his first coming. And that was rejected. In his second coming, he, he brings it. In his first coming, when he's, when he's preaching the kingdom, all this climaxes when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, where God camps and protects. He comes there and he comes to the temple. We see the cleansing of the temple, the prophecies of Jesus. And as he comes in on the day that we refer to as Palm Sunday, what does Jesus do? He comes in fulfilling exactly what Zechariah saw. 
A king is coming. He's mounted on a donkey. He's humble. And he rides into Jerusalem. That is the prophecy. That is the exact prophecy that we read in Matthew 21, in John 12. And they quote the text. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as the prophet Zechariah foresaw hundreds of years in advance. And, and when he did, the people were shouting. And the authorities in charge didn't like it. They were plotting his death. And shortly thereafter, Palm Sunday, there's going to be Good Friday. They're going to kill him. So much could be said about the historic scene with Jesus and this prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. It's tied to various prophecies of, of, the, of the suffering servant and the righteous branch of David and salvation. And speaking of salvation, salvation, it means anointed. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed. That's what Christ means. It means anointed. It's favor. David was the anointed king who in 1 Kings 1, what did he do? He rode into the city on a donkey. Zechariah sees a Davidic messianic figure who's, who's coming in this manner of a donkey. The donkey cuts off the horse and the chariot, the text says. That doesn't happen. You don't see donkeys beating horses at, at the racetracks. The weak wins. The donkey destroys. This is supernatural. Earlier I spoke about Alexander the Great. Alexander rode on a horse. He rode on a horse. That's what the pagan dictators did. War horses are, are fitting for tyrants. But the true king is a man of peace who brings his peace. And he, and he does so by his supernatural power. Speaking of Alexander, contrast Alexander with the true Messiah. Uh, one, one pastor was commenting on this, and, and he said it well. He said, at the age of 33, Alexander rode upon his mighty steed, Bucephalus, surrounded with soldiers and shields shining with spears glistening. Yet Zion's king, also 33, came riding on a donkey. Why did Jesus ride on a donkey? Why didn't he come with an impressive display of might? Because in doing so, he is humble, touchable, relatable. In fact, so seemingly ordinary was Jesus that even though he had been in the public eye for 33 years, the soldiers evidently needed Jesus to identify him. He wasn't anything spectacular. You ever think about that? The soldiers are like, wait, which one is he? Hey, Judas, which one is he? There's, there's nothing special about him. You know, you know those guys, you know, they, they got a red carpet, everything. They kind of stand out, they flashy, whatever, not Jesus. Now, Zechariah is seeing the horizons. He sees the future coming of Jesus. He sees the already coming of Jesus. He sees this humble Messiah. He, he sees him coming in on the donkey. We see that Palm Sunday. He sees this future realm. And in the future realm, when the king returns, what he's going to do is he's going to call the kindred. We see the kingdoms condemned. We see the king comes. Next, we see the kindred called. Zechariah is looking on those horizons. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 11. Also you, because of the blood of the covenant that I have with you, I have set your prisoners from the waterless pit. It's a cistern. They didn't have a prison system back then. A lot of times they threw prisoners in cisterns. I'm going to rescue you from the cistern, the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have hope, for the very day I'm declaring to you, I will restore double to you. I will, I will bend Judah as my bow. I will bow, Ephraim. I will stir your sons in Zion against your sons. O Greece, prophecy of Alexander, I will make you like a warrior's sword, and then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth with lightning, and the Lord will, will blow the trumpet, and I will march in the storms of the south. You see, Greece was bringing judgment on the pagans who had who had crushed and oppressed the people. You see, you see, God was using those empires to execute justice. He's sovereign over all. Where is your God? Oh, he's using all of these. Now, the language here that we have in front of us is apocalyptic language. The language of storms and trumpets, that's apocalyptic. It's historic, too. The Jewish people used horns in times of battle. We think of the walls of Jericho and Joshua 6 collapsing with the sound of the trumpet. That's power. That's divine power. Speaking of power, keep reading. Verse 15 the Lord of hosts will defend them and they will devour and trample, sling stones. They will drink. They'll be boisterous like those who've been drinking wine. They will be filled with sacrificial basin, drenched with the corners of the altar. And the Lord God will save them in the day as a flock of his people, for they are the stones of a crown sparkling in his hand. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? Grain will make the young men flourish and the new wine with the virgins. The, pastor, the passage is offering hope. People who have been oppressed don't, don't get together and have new wine. You know, virgins and young men and prosperity, they, they've been oppressed. They don't have anything. They're in the subways. They're being crushed. They don't have anything. But the Lord is going to bring judgment. He's going to liberate the people. 
Putin, Putin may think that he's getting away with dropping bombs on innocent people. He may think that he's getting away with painting this as, oh, we're, you know, we're the bad guys, we're just defending ourselves. He might think he's getting away with it, but judgment will come. The skeptic who says there is no God because evil is getting away assumes that judgment day is not coming. Now, you might not like the timeline of it, but don't mistake the timeline for the reality that it's not going to happen. Where, where is God? Why doesn't he do something? He is doing something, and he will judge all of this. Evil is not out of the control of God. The fact is, God is using history for his story. Speaking of his story, prophetically, we see here in verse 13, Greece, as I noted, the prophecy is future to Zechariah, as I noted. When Alexander died, his empire was divided. There was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who arose, who is a picture of the Antichrist. This, this is overlapping in his horizons that he's seeing with antichrists and tribulation and judgment. Antiochus was this anti-Semitic man who, man who went into the temple and he slaughtered Jewish people, erects a statue to Zeus and kills a, a pig on top of it and calls the people to worship pagan gods. And prophetically, God defended the people with the Maccabeans and the Maccabean revolt. And they defeated those monsters and God protected the temple and God responded to the cries of his people and he continues to do so today. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Ask, verse 1 of chapter 10, and the Lord will bring spring rain and the Lord will bring storm clouds and he will give showers of rain, vegetation in each field to each man. The Israelite economy was built on agriculture. It, was, it depended on rain. The land was a desert apart from God pouring rain on it. Mother Nature is not in charge. Father God is in charge. Mother Nature is a figment of our imagination. God's in charge of this. Zechariah says, ask God. All right, he's going to bring the rain. Oh man, that sounds really good. Keep reading, it gets dark again. Verse 2, for the teraphim speak iniquity. Teraphim are cult objects. They're domestic deities. The diviners see lying visions and they tell false dreams and they come in vain. Therefore, the people are going to wander like sheep and they're going to be afflicted. There will be no shepherd. Zechariah speaks of divination and lying visions and wandering people and cult objects. Israel is a mess. He sees they're a mess. He sees into the future they're a mess. He sees in the future false messiahs coming. Verse 3, my anger is kindled against the shepherds. I will punish the male goats for the, the Lord of hosts has visited the flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them like the majestic horse in battle. And then will, will come the cornerstone and from the tent peg and the bow of battle and from every ruler and all of them. Verse 5, they will be mighty men treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle and they will fight and the Lord will be with them and the rider of the horses will put them to shame. It's heavy imagery. It's war imagery. I will strengthen, this is good news, verse 6, the house of Judah, and I will save from the house of Judah, and I'll, I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them. That's long-suffering. They're chewing on idols, they got teraphim, they got diviners, they got false messiahs, they got all this stuff going on, and God says, I'm still going to be compassionate on them. Not because of what you have done. Gospel, because of what I have done. And they will be as though I have not rejected them. Verse 6, that's what justification is. That he declares us what we're not. I, I will, they will be as though I have not rejected them. And the, the Lord their God will answer them. And Ephraim will become like mighty men. And their heart will be glad. Uh, from wine. And indeed their children will see it and be glad. And their heart will rejoice. God's giving them grace. I will whistle for them. I will gather them. Verse 8. Keep reading. Follow. Follow. Come on. I, I, I've redeemed them and they will be numerous as they were. Verse 9. And I will scatter them among the peoples and they will remember me in far countries. And, and they with their children, they will live and they will come back and, and, and will bring back from the land of Egypt and they will gather them from Assyria and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them and they will pass from the sea of distress and he will strike the waves of the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down in the of Egypt will depart and I will strengthen them and in his name they will walk declares the Lord through the revelation given Zechariah speaks of God's faithfulness to the people I will bring God says it'll be his doing not because they earned it I will bring it I will do it I will give my grace those of you who are in need of his grace oh just he's, he will do it he will do it cry out to him give me your grace Lord he will do it Zechariah's focus turns from the flock onto the shepherds who are corrupted and you see this in the rejection of the Messiah. So he speaks of the arrival of the Messiah, chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 12. And then he moves in chapter 11 to the abjuration of the Messiah, or the man. To abjure is a word that means to solemnly renounce. 
uh, Zechariah's seen this crazy overlapping prophecy of stuff in front of him, of the Greek empire of the last days, and he sees them rejecting the Messiah. And so in this, he seeks to pastor those who are unrepented with, with, with his prophecy. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Open the doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed your cedars. Wail, O, o Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wall, O Oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down, and there is the sound of the shepherds, and the wail, and the glory is ruined, and there is the sound of the young lions, and they roar, for the pride of Jordan is ruined. And thus says the Lord, pasture the flock, doomed for slaughter, those who buy them slay them, and they go unpunished, and each who sell their ways. Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich, and their shepherds have no pity on them. And I, I, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power, and the power of his king. And they will strike the land, and I, I will not deliver them from their power. He's seeing a, a false king raising up and leading his people astray, and God gives them over to this. Because the people are just like the king they want. The people are just like their pastors, their shepherds. Indeed, the scriptures describe this phenomenon. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 of those who what? Accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and turn their ears from the truth. That phenomenon is still with us today. People want to hear anything and everything besides the word of the Lord, the masas, the burden. They want to hear something else because it's a symptom of a deeper problem. The unregenerate have that problem. So he moves from pastoring the unrepented to picturing the unregenerate. Verse 7, So I pastored the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. Now notice God is still pastoring. God is still sovereign. God is still long-suffering. Even to the hell bound on rebellion, he is giving his mercy. Verse 7, I pastored the flock together with the slaughters, hence the afflicted of the flock, and I took for my myself two staffs, and one of them are called favor, and the other one are called union, and I pastured the flock. Zechariah is going to give a parable with the picture of the staffs. The prophets were the ultimate players of charades. You play charades with people who are really good at it, you're like, dang, how do they do that? They win every time. He's playing charades, and he grabs two staffs. Guess what these are? And he names them, favor and union. And by the end of the picture, the union staff is going to be cut into pieces, which is a symbol of the disunity of the people and the face of God. And the favor staff will be cut into pieces to portray the covenantal unfaithfulness of the people. Verse 8, then I annihilated the three shepherds in a month. Scholars spill a lot of ink over who the three shepherds are because of the collapsing of the mountains. It's probably something in the immediate, three actual shepherds who are preaching false things he has in mind, and he leaves them unnamed because that's what you do uh, to shame. And no doubt, you know, pastors experience this, uh, the prophets experience this. You're going to have people who are going to say stuff about you that's not true, and you just go, hey, you know, there you go, they're unnamed. So that, but there's probably something in the future too, something he's seeing in these mountaintops. It could be the prophets, the priests, and the king, and the rejection of the Messiah, and, and, and he, they're done. Verse 9, and I will say, I will not pastor you. Uh, what, what is to die? Let it die. What is to be annihilated? Let it be annihilated. Let those who left one another's flesh. I, I took my staff favor. I cut it into pieces. You break my covenant that I made with the peoples. And so it was broken on that day. The afflicted of the Lord were watching me, and they realized this is the word of the Lord. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. They won't want to, but they will bow. They will acknowledge the word. The promises given to them would, are going to be missed because of their unfaithfulness. Pastoring the unrepented, picturing the unregenerate, the promise unrealized, verses 12 through 17. And then we are done with this great burden that Zechariah had, and it's a burden preaching it. Uh, uh, thinking of the promises missed, it's a sobering reality. A sobering reality as we think about the, the, those who are missing it. We think about ourselves. We think about Israel. We think about Palm Sunday. We think about how they missed it. Palm Sunday, keep that in mind, keep that in mind, Palm Sunday. Verse 12, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. So the prophet cuts his staff and he goes, give me my wages, I'm done with this, I'm done. But if, if you're not going to give me my wages, then never mind, other way I'm out of here. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, you take what they paid you, 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 throw, it, you throw it to the potter that magnificent price of which I was valued to them. That's sarcastic. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw it to the potter in the house of the Lord. It was all for naught, as the saying goes. The prophet poured his heart out to the people. They're, they're not listening. They're not listening. He goes, fine, I'm out of here. If you can pay me for my time or not. Whatever, I don't care. And so then they pay him and he takes the payment and he throws it in the trash. The potter's field is where the discarded pottery goes. It's trash. 
So we see then that, that, that the payment is unreceived. I said to them, if it's good in your sight, give me my wages. And so they, they do that. And they give him exactly 30 pieces of, of, of silver. 30 pieces of shil- silver, what's that? What's that the equivalent of? Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, we read that 30 shekels of silver was the price that was paid when an ox gored a lower-class servant. That's an insult, in other words. It's an insult. I I served you, I I labored with you, I pastored you, and you you give me the payment of of the lowest of society uh, that's been oared by an animal. Now this ought to your mind should be going. I told you keep Palm Sunday in mind. Keep Jesus in mind. This should help you understand the betrayal of Jesus. Remember what Jesus was betrayed for. 30 pieces of silver. He was treated like a, a gourd slave. Mind you, this is not me drawing a preaching connection to talk about Jesus. This is in fact the connection that the New Testament draws regarding this prophecy. That's why I said keep Palm Sunday in mind. Keep Palm Sunday in mind. Look, look, look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 9, Palm Sunday. This is the prophetic overlap. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent potter that I value. They took that and they threw it into the potter's house. This is exactly what we see in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, verse 9. Matthew sees this prophecy. Zechariah, even Jeremiah. Jeremiah in the 18th chapter has this imagery of the potter's field. And that's what Judas does, doesn't he? He sells out the Lord and then chucks it, doesn't he? He chucks it. Zechariah is seeing this crazy oracle. I see a Messiah. I see false messiahs. I see the Greeks coming. I see the temple being protected. I see the temple being desecrated. I see, a, I see someone coming in on a donkey who brings peace. I see someone rejecting him. I see 30 pieces of silver. I see him coming back. I see him winning. I see the nations being judged. I see the people being restored. I see a bloody Philistine being washed and welcomed. Verses 17 through 18, protection is unraveled after the payment is unreceived. Then I cut in pieces the second staff to break the brotherhood that uh, Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, verse 15, take for yourselves the equipment of the foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm going to raise to the, the shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing and seek the scattered and heal the broken or sustain one standing who will devour the flesh of the fat and who will tear their hoofs. Sounds like the Antichrist and what he does. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and in his right eye, and his arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. The cutting of the second staff reveals this severance between the sheep and the shepherd. But that doesn't mean that it's over because God is long-suffering in his love. He is faithful. And so that post-exilic community that is wrestling with their present is getting this oracle with all these overlapping prophecies but it, it's speaking to them into the present with application for them and application for us we did a lot of prophecy man that was three chapters and church is going really late today but anyway we're full full circle with this i began with the long-suffering love of god and we looked at the mess of the world and ukraine and then we jumped into this nation that's got nations around it and violence and everything we talked about the skeptics who say, where is your God? And the skeptics don't understand pain. That's a point of application to Israel and her pain, to us in our pain, to understand what we began with, the answer to the mess. The, the mess is sin, and we've all sinned, and we make a mess out of things. We saw a prophet sarcastically call out how men trust in their wealth and in their power, and it's fleeting. It gets thrown into the ocean. And we saw God's people and them listening to false prophets and, and the pain that that causes and, and the ruin that that causes. And we saw the Masas and this burden, but he brings this burden and he shows them these unfulfilled prophecies. The kingdom has been offered. The kingdom has been offered. You've been brought back. You're, you've got to be a priesthood. You're missing out on the prophecy. Here's the prophecy. Here's your calling. Here's your task. Instead of being excited to build the kingdom, they were building their HOAs and their 401ks, and they were missing out. And in the prophecy, he sees the Messiah coming on the donkey, and he sees them missing out. And we must think to ourselves, what are we missing out on? And then we come to this cup, and we're reminded that but by this cup, we would miss out on all things. And we open the cup, and we take the top, and we think of... This final point on your outline, God's unfailing promises. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He came for us. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, and this is a picture of his flesh. 
Oh, that you would eat this and celebrate him, but oh more that you would come to him in repentance and faith. Let's do both. Let's eat. Let's repent. And Father, forgive us that we care about things other than you, that we use our things for things other than your mission. And we open the cup and we cry out to the Father, giving thanks that he would send his son to bleed out for us. And Paul said we drink this cup, and he said the cup was prophetic. It proclaims his death until he returns. And so like Zechariah, we look into the future. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But we celebrate that he has come. And as surely as he has come, he will come again. Oh, you know the skeptics, they say, where is your God? Where is your God? Why hasn't he come? Why hasn't he come? What does Peter, what does Peter tell us? I guess it didn't make my slide, so I'm going to read it to you. Peter tells us this. 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to close with this scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, listen church. By his word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved. By his word, Peter tells us, they're being kept for judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 2 Peter tells us, but do not let this fact escape your notice. Behold that with one day, it's like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He's long-suffering. He's not wishing that any would perish, but all would come in repentance to him. Why hasn't he judged Russia? Why hasn't he judged X, Y, Z? Why hasn't he judged me? Because he's long-suffering. Because he wants you to come to him. He wants you to be saved. That you would be with him forever. That you would be to the praise of his glory. So as we close, as we sing to him, as we celebrate him, that's my prayer for you, that you would not leave this day without coming to him, that you would not leave this day without celebrating his long-suffering, that you would not leave this day without responding to, to his word and, and being reminded of his love and being reminded that he's in control of all things. Let's pray, let's sing. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the word that we gather to hear. And now we respond to your word in song, O oh God asking, Lord, that you would grab a hold of our hearts over which we are powerless but by your grace. Lord, as we stand, as we sing, Lord, sanctify your people, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.